You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 92 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Today's guest is Jeremy Wheat, who has lived for many years in Nigeria. And we are going to discuss uh, Iboga and Ibogaine, as well as a few other things, mostly Bewiti related. So thank you for being on the podcast. Uh, you're welcome. Could you tell the listeners a bit about who you are? Uh, yes. Um, well, my name is Jeremy Wheat. Uh, I'm British. I'm 46. Uh, I have a day job working as a consultant, um, mostly for public sector projects around the world. And there I work on um, in the field of oil, gas and mining, advising governments here and there. Um, but I also have a very strong uh, side interest in psychedelics and entheogens, um, with a particular focus on Iboga and Ibogaine. And how did you get your focus on Iboga and Ibogaine? Because these days it's uh, the underdog of the psychedelic community, I guess, where ayahuasca is the, is the most popular one people go to. Yes, that's that's very true. Um, I suppose I am uh, ordinary. Ordinarily, I'm interested in the underdog um, and the road less traveled. So you know, my I have a predilection for things which are less common and less popular. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that I spent 12 years living in Nigeria, which is just around the corner from where Iboga is found in Gabon. Uh, I actually measured it yesterday. And it's only uh, about 250 miles from uh, the southeast of Nigeria to the northern border with Gabon. So anyway, I have an interest in uh, West African culture and different cultures of Nigeria. And uh, I've been long interested in um, pre-recorded history of Nigeria. And I've long suspected that there were uses of entheogens in Nigeria. Um, and well, all of that is to say that, uh, as soon as I found out more about it, I found out about Iboga and then found out more about Iboga, I was, you know, predisposed to be more interested in an African entheogen than, um, entheogens from elsewhere. And it's, well, we can't know, but, uh, most likely it's the origin psychedelic of humanity as well, probably. Uh, who knows? Uh, it's likely to be very, very old. I was not, not in terms of preparing for this, just because of my curiosity. I was actually looking, I'm very interested in a particular culture of southeastern Nigeria, which involved worship of the leopard. Uh, and it's still going today. It's very much like a Masonic type uh, society. And it's always struck me as odd that you have uh, a group of people who uh, have a spirit animal involved in, uh, in you know, in the in in the sort of in their organization and as a symbol for their organization. And uh, also, you have to think that Nigeria would have had a lot more forest cover, um, you know, hundreds of years ago, sort of you know before colonialism and so on. And 
And so I, I very much see that there would be a continuity of cultures um, from sort of the eastern edge of West Africa down into Central Africa. And I reckon that there would have been all kinds of similarities as well as discontinuities among forest dwelling people in that part of the world, you know, centuries ago. All of which is to say, you know, well, we don't, we don't know how far back uh, pygmy cultures uh, go in either in Nigeria or in Gabon, but of course it's likely to be thousands, if not tens of thousands of years. And, you know, I always say that, you know, we've had anatomically similar human beings, Homo sapiens sapiens, for 200, 300, 400,000 years. And it seems unlikely to me that uh, it would have only have been in the last 4,000 or 5,000 years that we would have discovered not just, you know, plant healing plants, uh, entheogens, but, you know, all kinds of other herbal medicines and remedies and so on. So I, th I just think it's sort of, you know, much more likely that uh, the discovery of entheogens like iboga go way, 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 way back in time rather than, you know, in the last two to three to four thousand years. Another reason why I think uh, um, magic mushrooms and uh, iboga is older when it comes to usage is compared to like ayahuasca and uh, and uh, peyote and those those types is because it doesn't really require any cooking skills. You can just basically just pick it up and eat it. I guess the iboga you would be easier if you grind it a bit, but I mean you don't have to put two things together and figure that out it's already ready as is yeah that's true and also you know something that's not mentioned uh, which you just reminded me of is the amazon as a you know a, a, a forest is not that old actually there was a pre-amazon uh, savanna before the amazon and you, you may know that they found all kinds of uh, stone ruins which predate the actual forest um Whereas other parts of the world, such as Central Africa, have much, much older forests. So there's another reason for, I mean, not, not to compare, you know, in any kind of positive versus negative way, ayahuasca and iboga, just, just to say that, yes, in, in terms of age and antiquity, it, it is highly likely that uh, iboga is way, way older than ayahuasca. It has some relations, I think, because of who, who is the older, because having tried both, uh, I think the iboga, for me anyway, personally, and people I've talked to have also tried it, has uh, a lot of visions concerning uh, ancestors. Whereas the ayahuasca is more, um, can be that also, I guess, but for me it's been more more magical and healing in different ways. But the iboga for me particularly was more uh, ancestral. It was like a family reunion kind of experience have you had that very much so uh i have not tried ayahuasca um but yeah i've had three experiences with iboga and all three experiences have been very very ancestral uh, in 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 odd ways unpredictable and odd ways so yeah i think somehow who, who knows how iboga is really working but you know, kind of what my loose theory about what's happening with the boga is that it's it's uh, it's first of all reading into your DNA, and well, first of all, I believe that uh, DNA contains much more information about us collectively as a species than uh, you know the the usual theoretical framing of what how DNA works 
in Western science. Um, obviously, there is this uh, junk DNA, which has the structure of uh, syntax. Uh, it seems to have an ordered form about it. Uh, there's also been experiments that DNA communicates across di distance. Uh, so without, you know, without being an expert in these matters, I'm very open-minded about DNA being a potential mechanism by which we tap into a kind of co collective history, uh, whether, whether we want to think of that as some kind of ak Akashic field, you know, a kind of a collective memory that's recorded um, in some way in the sort of spiritual version of the cloud. However, however, I mean, we know so little and we have so much research ahead of us, but um, I think that's one hypothesis, hypothesis amongst others. So if, if we assume that that's sort of more or less the way Iboga is working, it's first of all, it's reading your personal DNA. Um, and within the strands of that DNA, there are, you know, there are ancestral memories, there are recordings of, uh, you know, all the people, you know, who are your ancestors, basically, which runs in quickly in, uh, across generations, runs quickly into the many thousands of people. Certainly when I, the second time I took Iboga, I had this experience, uh, which was of seeing maybe something like 20 images a second of faces. It was like a card reader going incredibly fast, uh, just so many faces per second. And I had no idea who they were, but it was, it was like a sort of family photo album going back in time very, very quickly. So, you know, that, you know if, if we don't want to be purely esoteric about what Iboga is and what it's doing, and we try to be you know, as scientific as we can, given our lack of knowledge, perhaps it is doing a quick scan of, of DNA and, go, and going through the kind of archives, if you like. Yeah, that could make sense. It's also, I think, a very good cure against racism if you see that all your ancestors are black. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, the very first time I took Iboga, I didn't take a very strong dose. It was sort of like a starter dose. But I had these uh, images of black people sort of smiling from afar and sort of saying, ah, we can see, we can see you're nearby kind of thing. But, and we can also see that you're not going to come close. Uh, and they were sort of just greeting me <laughs> in a way. Uh, and then I had images of uh, the second time I took it, which was a much stronger dose. Um, I had images of soldiers, black soldiers, and they were almost like family albums, you know, sort of sepia tinted, very, very photographic, um, you know, army uniforms, but not army uniforms from now, but army uniforms from maybe, mm, I don't know, 1930s, 1940s, something like that. Uh, and then the very last time I took Iboga, uh, which was very recently in Gabon, uh, one of the most striking ancestral images I had, which was completely surprising, was something like a, I'd say a Japanese, um, someone in sort of formal, you know, uh, official type Jap Japanese clothing. Um, and again, very photographic, but it seemed like it was from maybe 200, 300 years ago, so... Who knows why that popped into my mind, but, you know, it's certainly not an image I carry around with me, but, yeah. Yeah, that's. I think that's for me that if I compare the two, Iboga and Ayahuasca, that's the main difference, this photorealistic quality to your to the visions, where Ayahuasca it can look extremely real, but it still has this kind of... It's, it's so magical that it's almost like when you watch a Hollywood movie, you know what's CGI and what's not. 
But where I boga, I really had this thing where I wasn't sure I was seeing a vision at all. You know, I was confusing it with real reality. It looked so realistic. Yeah, it does. It does very strongly have this archival photo album type feel to it. I think. Um, so we, I don't think we're close, to, and I don't think anyone has scientifically tried to understand what that what what that is and how it's working. But um, yeah, as I said, I think my DNA theory is one candidate, and um, you know, sort of maybe a more practical, quasi scientific explanation pathway compared to others, but. Um, it is it is an odd experience because, as you say, it is. It's a bit like having a um, you know sort of having your DNA your DNA tested, you know, and you realize, oh, I'm I'm not completely Swedish or I'm not completely British, you know. You do have this sense of uh, the collective of humanity, sort of in time, and 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 how all these you know this complex array of ancestry is layered into who you are, and it's it's somehow present within you. It's it's a very odd experience in that respect. And it seems like it needs a trigger because, you know, I was in Gabon with friends and we all had like a small ceremony before we were doing the actual ceremony. So we only had one spoon each and I didn't feel it that much, uh, maybe a little, but it was extremely weak. Then I had my ceremony and it was amazing. And then a few days later, some other people were having their ceremony. So I had only one spoon. That, uh, during their ceremony and that time when i had one spoon i was completely smashed so it was so i was thinking like maybe you need to like after you had it properly then you become very sensitive to it that's how i i experienced it anyway yeah and well when i was in gabon which was only a couple of weeks ago i had a sort of anticipatory version of what you're talking about which was you know, in the sort of day or two before my main ceremony, I that 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 odd feeling where, you know, the iboga visionary experience is not like. Although people say iboga is more like an onerogenic um, than um, you know a psychedelic. You know that it's a sort of lucid dream, waking dream. I I don't know about you, but uh, or other people, but for me. The images that appear in the Iboga experience are not like dream images. They they do. It is like someone is inserting a photograph into a kind of uh, slide projector. It's almost like it's been s slid into view and then taken out, and another one is placed in, just like an old-fashioned slide projector. So anyway, I was having this experience of images appearing, sort of slide projector style, even before I took the Iboga. So it's almost as if you know once you've taken a boga you can sort of simulate you can tap into that form of experience even without taking a boga or maybe in your case you know you just need one spoonful and you know it kind of reactivates i mean there's that's the other thing about a boga maybe that's different to ayahuasca is that you know its half-life is very long um th there's a sense for me at least that you know once you've taken a boga something shifts sort of for good uh, certainly, uh, it stays, you know, outside of the visionary aspect of a boga, you have a feeling that, you know, it's still percolating in your system and doing stuff like days and even weeks afterwards. I mean, they do say, obviously, in terms of the ibogaine for, you know, addiction sort of therapy, they do say, look, it's, it's got a half, a half life of around six months, right? So you've got sort of, if, you know, if you're suffering from some, some kind of addiction issue, you've got, you've got six months to sort of change your life and change your phone numbers and change your friends and change your address and so on. 
and change your habits and so on. So, you know, if we, if we take that, if we take Ibogaine six months and we apply it to Iboga being six months, then, you know, outside of the visionary experience, uh, you know, you've got six months of r- internal rewiring of your psyche going on. Yeah, I think of, of all the psychedelics out there, I think Iboga is the one you have to be most careful when it comes to what are you going to do in the days after your ceremony, whereas with all the other ones, one day later, you can, theoretically, you can go to work. But with Iboga, you know, I would recommend at least make sure a few weeks you are completely free because, like, for my, I was fine after a few days, but I, my friend I went to Gabon with, uh, he, it took him a week before he fell asleep. And, like, five days after the ceremony, he was still talking to people that wasn't there. For me, I mean, that I didn't see, but he saw them. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I think, you know, I think, Alex, this is a really important point. I've, I've had the experience. You know, when you when you go on sort of psychedelic retreats and you meet a bunch of people and you chat and you get to know them quite intensely, I've had the experience with other people and uh, of you know there's they're real psychedelic. You know, there's this thing about being psychedelic tourists and you know that Western hunger to try have new experiences and try this and try that. And I've the two occasions I've taken a boga, you know, without mentioning names or anything. You know, uh, uh, the second time, the you know, the third time. The second time there was a guy and he took me a boga and then he was three days later he was going to an ayahuasca retreat in the UK and you know the the third time the chap was uh, you know wanting to take a boga again and then you know wanting to take something else and wanting and uh, I don't know I mean I can understand you know people have issues and you know they want to sort of delve into you know whatever's going on for them that's an issue whether it's some kind of childhood trauma or you know whatever it is that they're wanting to 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 reach down into but with a boga i yeah i would really caution that you know i mean if people you know are listening to this podcast and have have not taken a boga or ibogaine i would really caution that you know if you're in your kind of psychedelic tourist phase of your life that you know a boga is a destination you need to kind of hang around and take your time with and you know certainly don't you know if you've got a calendar of events planned out for yourself you know and you're paying you're paying for retreats here and there that it's just i don't know what you think about this alex but i'd just say look you know take your time and don't don't plan anything anytime soon after after your aboga experience because you really do need a lot of time and it's not just about sort of integrating your you know, whatever visionary experience comes up for you, but it's just about your body resettling and resetting. Yeah, I definitely think Iboga is the least recreational of all psychedelics. So if people want to just have fun, they should stick to to mushrooms, which is the trickster psychedelic where you can enjoy yourself. And if you don't eat that much, you can have a laugh but um, iboga and ayahuasca as well i think are uh, i think needs to be taken seriously and if you take them seriously you also get more out of it yeah i mean i you know the the only thing i'd say against myself and you there was look if if you're not interested in a you know a flood dose or a booty experience with a boga then you know just a, a half a teaspoon or a teaspoon you know just microdosing a boga is is pretty nice uh i actually i've taken iboga four times when i think about it because i did microdose iboga in new york um not so long ago and that was 
That was really nice, actually. Just walking around Manhattan with uh, you know half a spoon of iboga in the system was quite floaty, and uh, yeah, it was quite enjoyable. So, yeah, as a microdose, maybe I disagree with myself on, in that sense. You know, it can be more recreational. Um, I think, but not twenty-five spoons <laughs> or something. <laughs> no, you you. I mean, again, for people that have not taken iboga, you do. You are sort of learning to walk again. Uh, it feels like your body is not quite working for quite a while afterwards. But you've tried uh, ibogaine and iboga, and I, I've I've only done iboga. What, you know, and ibogaine is an extract of it. And some people have said to me that you know iboga is more real because it contains other things that ibogaine lack. Other things that are not like visionary, but are uh, contain uh, healing properties. Uh, what can you say about the difference between the two, or is is that not true? Or ah, well, this is the 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 old chestnut topic, isn't it? Of iboga versus, excuse me, ibogaine. Um, look, I think if we're talking about a clinical therapeutic setting where someone has, say, some kind of addiction, or if they're using it for some other medical type issue, like for instance, if they have Parkinson's disease, or you know, if if they want a brain refresh, you know, if they feel that you know they're forgetting things and they're you know they're getting old, or um, if you know an, another novel form of you know addressing something like bipolar or maybe monopolar depression, any anything which is in the realm of the medical then I would say, you know, at this stage of my thinking, and I've thought a lot about this and researched a lot about this and talked to a lot of people about this, but my conclusion at this stage is, look, you go for Ibogaine. You go for it in a very um, controlled setting. Uh, You know the dosage. You know your body weight. Um, You're having your heart monitored because maybe in a medical setting you're not so healthy or there are other risk factors involved. You know, your QT interval is being, you know, your heart QT interval is being monitored. Maybe you're on a a, a drip, which is giving you, you know, all, all the uh, nutrients you need. So uh, I would go for as much control as you possibly can. And the beauty about Ibogaine is, you know, you know, how much of the alkaloid you're consuming. Um, however, if you're not coming at this from, you know, a kind of medical issue type perspective, then I would say, you know, look, the, the Buiti setting has been, is scientific in a way, you know, it's been honed over many, many generations, probably hundreds, if not more than hundreds of generations. Uh, it's not neurotoxic. It's, it's, the risks of you, you know, unless you're very unhealthy, the risks of um, something, you know, an adverse reaction are pretty low, as long as you're healthy. Um, and, you know, in that respect, I think I think it's safe. And you've got a, a ritual spiritual context, which is very rich. Um, of course, it has the whole buiti elements around it of the, you know, the singing, the instruments, the bells, which are all designed to keep you up in that, you know, kind of high uh, spiritual awareness state. So in which case, you know, if, you, if you're coming at, um, you know, Tabernanthe Iboga from a kind of spiritual ritual, you know, journey type 
perspective, I would recommend Tabernante Boga. Have you spent a lot of time in Nigeria? Yes, um, I lived in Nigeria 12 years. And um, one thing I definitely know is that um, something which is often thought of as a kind of uh, false Tabernante Boga is called Rawolfia Vomitoria. Rawolfia Vomitoria. And it's, uh, I think it's in the, I might be wrong, but I think it's in the, sa the same Apocinaceae family as Tabernanthia boga. It's certainly similar in, in um, different molecular respects to Tabernanthia boga. It hasn't got ibogaine in it. Um, anyway, it, it's called different names in different Nigerian languages and has a history of being used for mental disorders and so on and so forth. Um, so we have clear archival records of Rawolfi Vomitoria being used. Um, and as I say, I, I speculate that in the southeast with this uh, leopard society, one, one of the things I learned actually in Gabon um, is that Uh, a certain type of bird migrates between Gabon and Enugu in the southeast of Nigeria and actually does, according to Professor Gassita, who's perhaps the world expert on, he is the world expert, leading world expert, he's a Gabonese um, academic in his 80s, um, he, he uh, knows about this migratory path of the birds and um, I heard through um, Tatayo at Ebando that uh, the birds actually drop boga seeds um, in the Anugu area, which is in the southeast of Nigeria. Um, so I reckon that there may well be Tabernanthia boga seeds in Nigeria, whether, you know, in, in living memory, whether they have been known about and consumed as iboga, I, I don't think that's true. But one of the things is that, yeah, it's only a couple of hundred miles away. It's less than a couple of hundred miles away to parts of Cameroon where there is Buiti. So it may well be that, you know, under the radar, there is Buiti-esque usage of um, Tabernante Iboga and that Tabernante Iboga actually grows in Nigeria. But this is all um, a little bit speculative on my, on my part at the moment. I'm still researching this. I have to ask also, because you mentioned your line of work, whereas you seem interested in, in indigenous culture and traditions, but I know that in many rainforest areas it's the oil and gas companies are a, a problem for the indigenous have you f had any conflict of interest for yourself regarding this or you're on the inside so it's a perfect person to ask you know i long for the end of hydro the hydrocarbon era uh i think i think we're in the sort of death grip of the end of oil and gas uh Oil and gas has been a, a disaster for places like Nigeria where, you know, it's going to cost billions and billions of dollars to clean up the Niger Delta. Will it ever get cleaned up? Probably not. Uh, oil and gas has been disastrous for Gabon. Uh, you know, the, the uh, somebody, somebody who's lived in Gabon for many years was telling me actually earlier today, um, you know, that you can sort of look at broad brushstrokes at uh, Uh, Gabonese uh, society that it was by and large a hunter-gathering forest-dwelling society I mean that, that sort of sounds a bit patronizing to say but it's just the truth that uh, you know most people lived in the forest most of Gabon was forest um, 
And so if you were a coastal Gabonese person, uh, it was fishing. And if you lived in the forest, then, you know, there was always um, forest meat and um, f- food from the forest available. Uh, up until the modern era, when you had uh, uh, the current president's father, um, Omar Bongo, and you had the discovery of oil. So you had, you had a non-agricultural society um, where, you know, living was uh, pretty easy in terms of doing work. Um, and then that was replaced by, you know, a, a kind of petro economy where a tiny number of people um, profit hugely from oil revenues. That leads to its own form of corruption. And at no point did you actually have, you know, a society which, uh, you know, kind of was able or had the opportunity to modernize itself. So some of the challenges today in Gabon are, you know, based on that history that you have, you know, a non-agricultural, mostly forest dwelling, mostly hunter-gathering society, then a pretty violent shift to an oil economy and all the disastrous economic effects that that has on a country. And so, you know, Although Iboga itself is in, in crisis um, in terms of sustainability, and I, I hope we get to talk about that in a moment, but, um, you know, Gabonese society itself um, is still in tension with itself. And, uh, you know, what, what happens in, you know, to, to Buiti, you know, does it get completely squeezed out of Gabonese culture as it, as it modernizes? You know, when I was in Gabon and, you know, finding out that, well, you know, for instance, what happened in Nigeria was that e- evangelical Christianity, Pentecostal Christianity has really put the squeeze on traditional culture and, you know, whether that's Yoruba or Igbo or, or whatever, so much so that, you know, shrines, traditional shrines have been, you know, burnt and, you know, demolished. And, you know, there's a, a sense of strong sense of shame um, and embarrassment about, you know, kind of pre-colonial, pre-Christian cultures in Nigeria. Um, and that is really, really in crisis, you know, in Nigeria in that respect, traditional cultures and traditional cultural values. And there's a sense that Gabon may be just going into that period right now. And, the, you know, the traditional culture of Buiti, you know, the traditional, you know, forest dwelling religion of Gabon may come under extreme pressure. Um, and, you know, those of us who've been fortunate enough to have the experience of going to Gabon and being initiated into Buiti, you know, there is a very real risk that that might not be available to, you know, foreigners in future. Yeah, I had two major insights when I went to Gabon. Was The first one was that I, uh, you know, even though I'm not personally responsible, I still have expected this kind of, you know, white guilt, like, oh, what have we done to this continent? And But I was so surprised that everybody I met looked up to Europeans. It's really, I, I thought they would be like, oh, you, you know, damn gringos. <laughs> um, because that's it's how it's like more in Latin America, where they, like... They still remember what those gringos did, but in in Gabon, my experience was that they, you know, looked up to to white people and wanted to be them. And one guy I talked to, who lived in the rainforest, fairly traditional. I mean, still closer to modern life, but compared to our lives in, in Europe, you know, he was living in the forest in a hut. I was saying to him, "Oh, you know, I would love your life," you know. All you need to do is uh, fish and get your food and you, you live here in the forest. And he said to me, yeah, but I want your life and all the things you have. You know, So it's like relative. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I think um, the attitude towards, if I can say this, I think the perspective and attitude towards white people in Gabon may be roughly similar to my experience of Nigeria. And on the one hand, you do you do have white privilege. You are automatically at, a, at an advantage just because you have white skin and people look upon you favorably. And, and, and the reason they do is that, you know, I think, you know, they see economic prospects. They see that you have money, that there might be a transaction. Um, or, you know, in terms of if it's a man and a woman, if it's a, you know, a Gabonese woman, then she may see a, you know, a, a plane ticket out of, out of Gabon, you know, which is a very difficult society for women to, to live in. Um, but I think there is a shadow side to it, you know, and I, I definitely picked up on that and had many experiences of this living for 12 years in Nigeria, which is that, you know, there's resentment, um, uh, it's uh, whiteness and white skin is also viewed oppressively, you know, there's, there's envy, there's jealousy, and there's also, you know, kind of more negative feelings towards white people. Of course, you know, you don't, you might not pick up on these if you just if you're just in a you know West African or a Central African country just for a, you know a couple of weeks or so. I mean, my only impression of Nigeria is what I I see through the media. So I see it. Uh, I know that uh, you should only trust your direct experience. So I don't trust what the media says. But what I've seen is that it's a very dangerous place to be in. How how dangerous re- really is it? Uh, well, you know, these days, uh, <laughs> these days where it's safe, you know, I mean, the news, the news in the last few, few days, in the last few weeks has been so terrible and, you know, Europe, nowhere in Europe feels particularly safe these days. Um, I think, uh, you know, when I, when I, you know, after, you know, living so long in Nigeria, when I go back to Nigeria, I feel like I'm at home and, um, I feel comfortable and, You know, if I visit Lagos, which is, you know, a big city of maybe 20 million people and incredibly noisy and uh, lots of energy, I still I still feel comfortable and, you know, not anxious. Uh, that's because I, I think I can read the city and I, I can understand, you know, where are the safe areas and where are not the safe areas. And I have the right body language so that I'm not, you know, kind of projecting vulnerability or anxiety. So I think if you live anywhere... You know, I mean, for instance, I is an, another example. For instance, uh, I was working in Iraq once. And, uh, you know, this was a few years ago, but uh, uh, so before ISIS and so on. But I was incredibly nervous to, you know, get get off at Baghdad Airport and go on Route Irish, which, for you know, at one point was the most dangerous road in the world. And you know, at one point, you know, the car, we were waiting to get into the, you know, the international zone and, You know, so I was just filled with nervousness and anxiety and I could smell bombs going off and so on. But at the same time, you know, there were British people living outside of the international zone, journalists and so on, just, you know, on the down low, you know, uh, it didn't feel a thing. So I think a perception of safety and security is, you know, it's partly just to do with the lived experience and, you know, the habits and perceptual comforts of knowing, you know, your way around and you accrue that over years So anyway, all of that's a long, way, a long-winded way of saying that you know I know Nigeria pretty well, um, for the most part. Out of outside of all the obvious places, like you know, currently the Niger Delta is very dangerous, uh, especially for foreigners with the risk of kidnapping again. But outside of the obvious hotspots, you know, I'm I'm pretty comfortable and I feel pretty safe in Nigeria. 
my experiences from traveling is that in most countries outside of the Western world, the most dangerous thing is crossing the street. Yeah, and you know, you know, it's a, it's a. We have to talk about race at this point. If you're a a black person, unfortunately, whether you're in Sweden or the UK or the States, you know, you are intrinsically less safe than white people. So again, it's a white white privilege version of security and safety around the world. You mentioned earlier about sustainability of iboga. Um, what uh, what about it? Okay, so I'm going to have to climb onto my high horse. I'm afraid because um, I, you know, I'm aware of the economics of ibogaine. The it's it's in a way fortunate that ibogaine is an illegal, you know, uh, schedule one drug in America. It's fortunate because this means that there can be, uh, you know, ibogaine clinics elsewhere, um, in particular in Mexico, where there's something like 30 clinics, uh, other places like Costa Rica and, um, you know, the many other clinics in other parts of the world too. But, you know, the sort of epicenter of ibogaine therapy remains uh, Mexico, a great place to go and, uh, you know, cure yourself of your addiction. And... um, you know, there's a dirty, I'm, I'm going to have to be, you know, honest and uh, frank at this point. There's a dirty little secret about um, the supply chain for Ibogaine and nobody wants to talk about it. And I find it unethical and I, it feeds corruption in Gabon. Um, it's greatly threatening the sustainability of Tabernante Iboga. There are people who are, you know, far more expert at this than than me. But you know, just a couple of days ago, I spent two hours talking to someone who's very much in the know about what's how Iboga is smuggled out um, of Gabon. You know, the uh, you know police seizing um, Iboga and then turning it into a business opportunity for themselves. Um, and it all centers around, you know, there's one particular company. Uh, maybe I won't n- name them. Um, I don't want you to get you into trouble legally, but there's one particular company. Everybody who knows about Iboga and Ibogaine knows about this company. And I think they don't have any principles at all. They probably are happy to buy off police who sees this stuff. Um, and it's just, it's just a dodgy, dirty, clandestine, unethical, you know, unprincipled, unscrupulous trade. Now, um, that may be okay, but the reality of it is that there are providers, and don't get me wrong, um, Alex, the providers in Mexico and elsewhere do an am- amazing job, and they do a difficult job because it's not easy, you know, working with, you know, people with serious drug addictions. So kudos to them for the work they do and the amazing pioneering work they do, but not kudos to them for where they're getting this stuff from and its effects on Gabon. And they're making, you know, if, if, if you go to one of the top Mexican clinics, you know, they're going to charge you three, five, six, seven, eight, ten thousand dollars $10,000 for your treatment. Maybe you'll be in a luxury setting with a swimming pool and massage and, <laughs> excuse me, raw food. But, you know, they're making loads of money. I went to the, I went to the, uh, the Gita conference in Mexico earlier this year, the, you know, Global Ibogaine Therapy Alliance Conference. <laughs> Excuse me. And, uh, you know, clearly people are, have done very well out of their therapy clinic business and kind of cashed out. And, 
do they care about where they're buying their, um, where, how they're sourcing their ibogaine? I don't think so. Um, <coughs> do they ever think about contributing to Gabon? No. Do they care about Bwiti uh, or the preservation of Bwiti? No. Um, you know, and so I find the whole thing problematic. So on the one hand, I'm, you know, a huge supporter of Aboga and Ibogaine and hope there's more research in the future and that <laughs> it's more widely available and it's, you know, legally available. Um, I don't think it should be, you know, just available to anybody. I think it, it should be in a, you know, a c controlled um, setting so that you have to have a prescription for the stuff like in New Zealand. Um but at the moment, I, I really want to challenge the status quo. I think it's, it's not right. Um, Gabon is suffering. There's cor creeping corruption around Iboga and uh, the sourcing of Ibogaine. There are particular people involved in this. Um, and it's time that they were exposed and that we move to a cleaner supply chain, more ethical supply chain, which you know, was of benefit to people in Gabon and um, you know, help, help support the sustainability of Bwiti. So... You know, you know, that's me on my high, high horse. Um, I'm just an out, outside sort of observer at this stage in the game. But, you know, there are people, organizations like Blessings of the Forest. Uh, I know you've had um, Ben and uh, Jan on your show before. But, you know, I want to, you know, give them a heads up again that, you know, there are people who are, you know, in, you know, on the cold face of this issue. Um, but I think it's time, you know, the, the providers and the suppliers you know, some questions were asked of them, sorry to say. And if somebody is willing to spend uh, that much money on an Iboga retreat, uh, they can spend the same amount of money and uh, go to Gabon instead, you know? I think that's an excellent suggestion, Alex. Um, I think there's a good opportunity for um, for something like this in Gabon. Uh I think Gita itself, Global Ibogaine Therapy Alliance, is a bit of at a bit of a crossroads. I, you know, I'm not dissing dissing Gita at all. You know, some great people involved, but um, I think Gita or other organisations now need to kind of take take a look at where we are with um, ibogaine um, in terms of ad advocacy for it being um, legalised in different European countries in the states. Um, I think much more advocacy work needs to be done. I think there's been very, very weak and poor advocacy around it, actually, um, given, given how you know beneficial it is, given you know the statistics of addiction in the West and anywhere else in the world. So much better advocacy needs to be done around um, ibogaine, I think. Um, and we do need to solve this supply chain issue. And yeah, I totally, totally agree with you that... Um, Gabon should be a destination for people, uh, you know, are, are suffering from addiction or, or whatever. So there's there's an opportunity there which I hope can can get filled at some point in the future. And in fact, it's actually cheaper. Uh, I mean, depending on where you live in the world, it could be expensive with the plane ticket to get to Gabon. But actually, when you're in Gabon, even though Gabon is an expensive country for for Africa, it's uh, uh, you would never come up to $10,000 by the end of it, unless you stay for months, maybe. <laughs> no, and um, you think about one of the most successful uh, clinics uh, outside of uh, Mexico. It's the Minds Alive Clinic in Durban, uh, run by Anwar Jiwa. And Anwar is a staunch advocate for using Tabernanthia boga, not Ibogaine. 
And he has had thousands of patients uh, and never an adverse reaction to my knowledge. Uh, and that, you know, that's in South Africa. So he, he's kind of proved that you can do it in an African context. Okay, it's South Africa, not Gabon. Um, so it's kind of building on his work, you know, and he, he takes his work very seriously. He's actually an excellent, you know, he's, he's been in the Ibogaine movement for years and years and years. Uh, he knew how it lots off very well. So, you know, we do have a model, um, you know, an, an ethical model as far as I know. Um, I think he sources his uh, iboga from Cameroon, uh, not from Gabon. Uh, I'm not 100% sure about that. But, you know, we definitely have a, an African model for a successful clinical practice for addiction um, that can be built upon in the case of Gabon. Isn't one uh, root of this problem that it's difficult to grow iboga anywhere else? That's right. Well, you know, this, you know, what I want to be doing sort of as I move away from my career as a consultant is I want to be um, trying to solve the supply chain problem by producing Ibogaine from uh, Vokanja Africana. So I don't know if you know about this, but Vokanja Africana is a far more prolific shrub than Tabernanthia boga. It's found across West Africa. It's found in abundance in Nigeria. It's found in Ghana, it's found in Côte d'Ivoire. Um, it's easier to grow, it grows much more quickly. Uh, the disadvantage is that it has weaker amounts of ibogaine in it than Tabernanthia boga. Uh, the advantage is that it has other alkaloids that Tabernanthia boga doesn't have, which are also very interesting. Yeah, my, my project, um, sort of my, my mission in life is to... Um, produce ibogaine from from this alternative source which will uh, hopefully protect gabon and tabernanthia boga from you know further unscrupulous supply chain practices do you have a witty name did you get one of those when you were in gabon <laughs> yeah uh, my witty name is bovenga which means the lion ah then i can introduce myself as awani which means wisdom aha very nice Did you manage, because I didn't do that, but I read about it, but it didn't happen for me. Did you have this part of the ceremony where you looked in the mirror? Yeah, when we were initially eating the uh, first few spoonfuls, we were sat in front of the mirror each. You know, it's kind of dark and there was just torch torchlight and it was a bit odd actually. Uh, obviously, you know, after a few spoonfuls, it all starts going a bit strange. <laughs> yeah, I remember I was so concentrated on trying to eat as many spoons as possible because there was only one ceremony and I traveled across the whole world to do it and I didn't want to, you know, puke it up too early or mess up. So I was just focusing on eating as many spoons as possible. And then when I finished eating, I started thinking, oh, I forgot what I had done, you know, like, oh, how much did I eat? You know, I got very scared because I... I While I was eating, I wasn't thinking really about what could happen by eating so much. Yeah, you know, I, I unfortunately got a very sensitive stomach, so I could only manage 15 or 16 spoonfuls, and then I vomited. Um, if I was going to take a boga again, I'd look about, try to do have a, a boga enema, I think, just because my stomach is so sensitive. Also, I advise, because I, I was there with a male friend, and you know, how traditionally male are, you know, he saw me eat 25 spoons, so he, when his ceremony came up, he, you know, he didn't want to be uh, worse than me, so, you know, he tried to eat as, just as many, but, you know, everybody's different, and he's much more sensitive than me, 
and uh, so it be you know he ate too much that's why it took so long for him to to uh, come back you know so you shouldn't really don't think about what other people do do what's good for you yeah i think i mean i did find myself typical male thinking about spoon count <laughs> and the guy i was with uh, you know he he took 21 and but you're right it's ridiculous and silly to you know compare and you, you have the experience that you're meant to have and you know i'm gra- i'm grateful for the experience that i had and who cares about spoon count is silly it's only good for you personally so you know that if you do it again you know like you know how many you can handle and it's more good for that that's right you know although spoon count remains an issue because i i have heard that you know in in some traditions some traditions of buiti obviously there's different schools and so on different lineages but some some in some traditions especially the ones for women you only take you know two or three spoons whereas in other traditions you know you can take up to a hundred spoons that would be difficult i think because it's like uh, I, i always equated with like sawdust and anise yeah well, I think you know, you know, on you know, so maybe to contradict what I was saying earlier, that in terms of the, you know, if you wanted to have like a, a really deep flood experience, then at least with the ibogaine, you know, you're just taking much, much more con- concentrated, you know, uh, capsules. You could, you know, I haven't had a flood dose ibogaine experience, but I think it, 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 you know, when I'm ready for another experience with um, with I- iboga, I'd actually be interested in a flood dose with ibogaine. Just because of the nature of my stomach. Do you have any uh, Twitter or Facebook or anything you want to share? Or if not, that's fine also. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite active on both. Um, my Twitter, I just I tweet is first name, last name. It's Jeremy Wheat, which is J-E-R-E-M-Y-W-E-A-T-E. But on Twitter, I tweet about tweet about um you know nigeria and you know extractive industries as well as psychedelics whereas my facebook which you can find just by putting my name into facebook it's pretty much all about psychedelics and focus mostly on iboga and you know i i use facebook because i'm a member of iboga world you know different different facebook groups iboga world and ibogaine universe and you know the one bando has and so on so for me, very much Facebook I use for, you know, Iboga community reasons rather than anything else. But, yeah, if anyone wants to add me as a friend on Facebook and they're interested in Iboga or Ibogaine, I'd be very happy to be your friend. Cool. Thank you a lot for taking the time to talk to me. No, you're welcome. and I enjoyed the chat. Follow Jeremy on Twitter. His handle is Jeremy Wheat. J-E-R-E-M-Y. W-E-A-T-E. Now we are going to listen to Shirobon's track Regain Control from the album Distant Reality. And if you like this music, surf over to shirobon.bandcamp.com. That's S-H-I-R-O-B-O-N dot bandcamp.com. And all the links I've mentioned, as well as some additional ones, can be found in the program notes, as usual, on naturalbornalchemist.com. Freedom is in the mind. It's the 
Can't get enough of your love But to save you now I've got to give it up Can't get enough 